Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge that it is, it's all about you. And that, God, we thank you that there's nothing we can do to earn your love, that you give your love freely to us, that you willingly, Lord Jesus, laid your life down for us. And, God, we thank you that you see us as spotless and that you've declared us innocent, that you've infused your righteousness in us. And, God, I just uh, thank you for your amazing, never-changing Word of God. And, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to mold our hearts as we move from worship and song to worship in the Word, and that you would have your way with me. God, that you would move me out of the way. Lord, if there's things in these notes that you don't want me to say, if there's things, God, that haven't crossed my mind, please put those thoughts in my mind, that they would honor and glorify you, and they would edify the body of Christ. So uh, just have your way with us. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are, as Chris said, we are going to get back into 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And it's good to see some female types out there this week. Welcome back. I hope I trust you had a great time. We're in the, the home stretch, final section, chapters 10 through 13. And Paul introduces a wartime posture. Paul is, talks a lot about war, a lot about battle, a lot about being the Christian walk, being about uh, like being a soldier. He also talks about being an athlete. But these final four chapters takes a noticeably different tone. And uh, he talks about being a warrior. The title of the message is a two-part series, and it's called Spiritual Warfare, Part 1, Compassion and Courage. We're just going to go through the first two verses today, which uh, kind of boggles my mind because I was thinking that we'd go through maybe 13 or 14 verses. But I just couldn't get past the first two. And we're going to talk about Paul's life that was a war. And when we think about Compassion and courage. I think of Popeye. I think of Popeye. Remember what Popeye would say when, when Bluto would just pound him and pound him and pound him and try to steal olive oil? And what would he say? <laughs> stand up and say that. <laughs> I can only stand so much and I can't stand no more. And that's really Paul's posture here is that uh, Paul is a long-suffering guy. He's full of compassion. He's gentle. He's meek. But push him to the brink, and you better watch out. Let's read the verses together. And I'm going to read through verses 1 through 6, even though we're going to just examine the first two verses today. It says this, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapon of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Now when Paul comes to the end of his life, he says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. Paul really sees himself as a warrior, as a soldier in a battle called the Christian walk. It had been a continuous, unrelenting battle. In fact, he also told Timothy in the very same epistle, 
as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, one who had suffered hardship in the battle and was fighting loyally to please the one who had enlisted him to be a soldier, his Lord. Paul actually recognized that he was enlisted and that his commanding general, the one that he served with all of his heart, was the Lord Jesus Christ. His Christian life was a constant battle to protect the truth, to protect the gospel from assaults, to advance the gospel, to conquer the satanic realm of error, to preserve the honor and advance the glory of his commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. He battled for the security and strength of the church. He battled against demons. He battled against false teachers. He battled against the wolves that threatened to devour the church. War and hardships consumed his life. Apostle Paul was arguably the most powerful man, the most influential man for the gospel that this world's ever known outside of Jesus Christ. As we take a peek into 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, that Paul endured imprisonments. He was beaten times without number. He was in danger of death. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was in danger in rivers from robbers, from his own countrymen, from Gentiles. He was in danger in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. He couldn't get away from it. He was in danger from false brethren, false brothers. He had many sleepless nights. He hungered and he thirsted. Oftentimes he was without food and he was caught in the elements. And he was exposed to the cold and to the heat. He couldn't escape from the battle. Paul recognized that he was called to the battle. You know, and that's not a real uh, warm and fuzzy thing that I like to think about. But Paul, and all throughout the epistles, says that we're soldiers. And we're just going to unpack a little bit today about what does it mean to be a soldier. In all the warfare that the apostle endured, and all the riots from which he escaped with his life, nothing was more ongoing and unrelenting than than the warfare waged against the preservation of the Corinthian church, of the church in Corinth. Paul founded this church. Paul spent 20 months of his life founding this church. Not a single Christian in that town. And Paul came into Corinth with the power of the gospel. The word went forth and many people were saved. He spent 20 months sacrificing and bleeding and loving this family, this church family, as if they were his own children. He never realized that the rest of his life after he left Corinth, after those 20 months when he left, that he would spend the rest of his life babysitting, fighting hard. He went back there two more times. He wrote three letters. He wrote a letter called the Severe Letter that we don't have on record. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It was a letter that rebuked the false teachers. He wrote 1 Corinthians, which was to the church at large, which was more instructive, talking them how to live their Christian walk. And then the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, he lays down the hammer. Because there are false teachers in that church. So Paul is in Ephesus on his third missionary journey when he writes this book. He writes the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians that are really more instructive. He brings down the hammer a little bit, but he really brings down the hammer. Not on the body of Christ in general, but on the few false teachers, on the Judaizers, on the slanderers that are trying to discredit him from his apostleship. These Judaizers started a smear campaign against Paul to undermine his authority, his character, his credibility, his integrity. It worked. It was starting to work, and the people, the body, the flock was starting to lose confidence in him. If you've ever had to deal with slander, you know it's not easy to take back. 
It's difficult to clear your name. Once that slander gets into the wind and you're not sure where that wind is blowing, it's very hard to get it back. So Paul is putting out a pretty stern warning in this, in this particular book. In this final section, in the last four chapters, all four chapters, he directs his words at those remaining rebels. Not at the body at large, but the remaining rebels. It's very, very important that he deal with it. Paul has a sense of urgency, yet it's couched with patience. And I am so convicted by this message. Because oftentimes, when I am wronged, whether it be in my home, whether it be in the church, whether it be in the community, first thing I want to do is I want to start swinging. You know, I want to start swinging. And I see it in the universal church as well. When the church is wronged, when there is tension against the schools, there's hostility against the schools, I see the first thing we want to do is we want to start, we want to start swinging. And we'll unpack this just a little bit more. Paul's coming back. He's writing this letter, and he's telling the rebels in the church in Corinth, he says, I'm coming back. And I'm coming back with guns a-blazing if things don't change. He's coming to deal sternly and strongly with false teachers and those dividing the church. Now, by the way, he's writing this from Ephesus, and he sends the letter back to the church in Corinth. And it's over two months before he plans to go back, so he's sending this stern letter. But he doesn't want conflict. He doesn't want conflict. He wants these rebels to either repent or to leave. Paul has a warfare perspective. He has a battle plan. You know, since Paul refers to battle, and I was never a soldier. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed by this. And I see the two soldiers that I interviewed aren't even in here this morning. But in my era, I missed Vietnam by two years. I think they stopped the draft in 73. I graduated from high school in 75. I turned 18 in 75. And I was thinking through my early years in high school that if I was eligible for the draft, uh, that I was going to bail. I was going to bail. You know, I was headed to Mexico or Canada. I had no, at that time I was, I was well, at this time too, I'm very selfish. But then I was selfish in that context. But I asked two military guys in this body, guys that were both lifetime military, what are the qualities of a soldier? And, you know, I got some of the same answers from both of them in two independent conversations. And here's what they said. The qualities of a good soldier are that they operate in a unit. There's no lone rangers in the military. You know, even when you think of the, of the Navy SEALs or you think of the Marine guys, their little corps, what's that called? The equivalent of the Navy SEALs? Green Beret, yeah. yeah I think, let me see the movie, The Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen, that was a great, great movie, wasn't it? Yeah. When those guys started acting as Lone Rangers, that's, that's when they got hurt. But they operate as a unit. A good soldier operates as a unit. And one of the two says, it's when they understand group punishment. I'm going, group punishment? What is group punishment? And he says it's when they recognize that when one suffers, we all suffer. That's a common term in the military or something that that this man understood is that they're called the group punishment. They're fully trained. A good soldier is fully trained. One of them said that there is instant obedience. Instant obedience. And that comes from knowing their mission. They know a good soldier knows their mission. They know when to follow. They know when to lead. A good soldier knows who the enemy is. And a good soldier knows who the enemy is not. A good soldier knows the rules of engagement. Now let's look at the first trait of Paul as a soldier. Paul called himself a soldier. In verse 1, it talks about that trait. 
And I call it compassion. And it's made up of gentleness and meekness. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? A soldier? Meek? Listen to this. Verse 1 and 2. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold when you are absent. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. You say, well, we're taking two verses today. There's a lot in those two little verses. The word now signifies a change in direction. He just talked about the offering in chapters 8 and 9. And now there's a whole total shift in mindset. In fact, there are some people that say that the last four chapters are a separate letter. I'm not convinced of that. I think that Paul took some kind of pause. I don't know if he got a bite to eat, if he used the restroom, or what he did. But there is a change in thinking. Now signifies a change in direction. And then he says, I... Paul, myself. Who talks like that? I, Paul, myself. You know, what, what it reminds me of is that as a kid, being a small guy, I'd pick fights. And the big guy, when I'd say, okay, you stop it or I'm going to knock your block off. He'd go, yeah, you and who else? I'd go, me, myself, and I. And what Paul's saying there is he is just affirming his authority, that he doesn't need Credentials. He doesn't need a pedigree. He is emphasizing that he is serious and that he has the credentials and authorities that come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need it from them. It's very important that he affirms this so that his words come with authority and his threats come with authority because he's going to make threats here. He will confront the remaining rebels. He has a right to do that. He is the authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. I, Paul, Myself. Here comes the compassion part. Before he comes wielding his apostolic authority, he says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, I'm begging you to end this rebellion. I'm begging you to be reconciled. He has no desire for open conflict. Paul really doesn't. He doesn't have any desire for conflict. He is patiently compassionate. He's going to wait some more. He's going to send this letter. and He's going to wait another two months. Like Christ, a great soldier is not vicious or full of venom. He's not full of hate, anger, or revenge. It's kind of a different way of looking at a soldier, isn't it? And I would submit to you that these two uh, lifetime soldiers would say the same thing. That when you go to war with hate and revenge and anger, you die and people around you die. Paul was compassionate. He is a man of meekness and gentleness. I love the definition for meekness. When you look at the Greek in meekness, it says pratis, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. It refers to a humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in the patient endurance of offenses. Meekness. Patient endurance of offenses. It's free from anger. It's free from hatred, bitterness, desire for revenge when wrongly treated. And this is my favorite definition of meekness. Power under control. Power under control. That's what a good soldier is. That's what Paul said that Christ was. He's coming to them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Power. Paul has that power because God gave it to him. And he's going to use it. 
but it's under control. Gentleness. It means leniency when applied to someone in authority. It says that you have the power to retaliate, but you don't. That's gentleness. You have the power to retaliate. Parents, we've got the authority to discipline our kids. But there's times, well, we always need to be gentle. Always need to be gentle. But gentleness is the power to retaliate or the power to discipline, and we don't. No one more characterized these two words than Christ. And Paul says it. No one was more powerful than Jesus Christ, yet no one had a better harness on that power. Christ, God from the beginning of time, could have retaliated on sin. And he, he has patiently endured it. Time and time again in the Old Testament, he endured it. Paul says, even though you've mistreated me and, and maligned me and turned against me, I have no anger, no bitterness, no malice. Even though you've disgraced me and shamed my name and shamed the Lord and shamed the gospel, I want to be patient with you. That's the character of a great soldier. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2? We're going to look at the, the greatest example of gentleness, meekness, and endurance that we've ever seen in the Bible. Paul doesn't look at the first opportunity to blow someone away. He considers it the last possible choice. It is so convicting to me. 1 Peter 2.19 says this. It says, It finds favor with God when man bears up. Another way of saying that is when a man endures under sorrows while suffering unjustly. While suffering unjustly. God is pleased when you suffer unjustly and you endure it. When you don't retaliate, when you're not angry, full of hate and rage, God is pleased when you endure it. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? This is really ironic. Because there's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in sinning against somebody and they retaliate against you and you endure that. So what? You deserve it. You deserve it. There's no virtue in that. It goes on to say, but when you do what is right and suffer for it, when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, that what? That finds favor with God. That is a level of spiritual mobility. When you are misrepresented, when you are persecuted, when you're assaulted, when you're slandered, when you're reviled, all that stuff that was happening to Paul, when you patiently endure that, that's what finds favor with the Lord. And there's so many applications, isn't there? The one that always comes to my mind is marriage. It always comes to mind. Right? You know, we're doing this marriage study called Love and Respect, and there's this crazy cycle thing. And she, she doesn't love me because she doesn't feel respect from me. And I don't feel respect from her, so I don't love her. And it is so wrong because I am to love my wife and lay my life down for her, no matter what she might say or do. Because that finds favor with God. Verse 21 goes on to say, in the first Peter verses still, chapter 2, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, What does that mean? What purpose? You might as well learn to deal with it because that's part of being a Christian. We've been called to suffer. We have. We've been called to suffer. 
Every other part of the world in Christendom knows that. Except us in America. If our finances aren't just right, if our job isn't just right, if people don't respect us, if we don't have a a new car within a certain couple of years, we consider we're suffering. We're to live counter to the culture. We're to live as an alien in the world, a visitor in this world. You can expect, expect, brothers and sisters, to be harassed, harangued, and even persecuted for what is doing right. We're going, to be, we're going to be harassed and persecuted in our own home. We're going to be harassed and persecuted in the body of Christ at times. And if we're really living for Christ, we're going to be, li- we're going to be harassed and harangued by the world as we give testimony to the living God of the universe. Paul says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I'm not sure how to do that, but I know he calls me to that. Consider it all joy when we fall into various trials. In this world you shall have tribulation. You know what? It just goes with the territory. So when we learn how to suffer patiently and endure it, and have a right attitude towards those who persecute us, that finds pleasure. That makes God pleased. Verse 21 continued, it says, Since Christ also suffered for you, to leave you an example for you to follow in his steps. He showed us how to endure unjust suffering. Is there anybody in the history of mankind that endured unjust suffering like Christ? The only difference is is that he didn't sin. He committed no sin and never had any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 22. We have seen and deceit has come out of our mouths though we still suffer unjustly. We're not perfect. He suffered unjustly and he was perfect. What's the example? Verse 23. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. He suffered. He uttered no threats. What did he say on the cross? Father, torch them! He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They beat him, they spit on him, they staked him to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. You know, Christ and Paul, they both knew their mission. Paul knew his mission. Christ knew what he was here for. Christ knew before he left the Godhead what was ahead of him. Christ knew that he he needed to be the spotless lamb that laid his life down and suffered a brutal death. He knew his mission. Paul knew his mission. It was to expand the gospel to the Gentiles on this earth. It wasn't easy. I'm sure it was horrible. But it's impossible. Let me say this. It is impossible for us to not revile when we're reviled if we don't understand our mission and what it is we're called to. If we think we're not called to suffer... When that suffering comes up, we're going to revile, aren't we? Paul says, I come to you with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I come to you with forbearing patience. You know, this needs to be our attitude. I just so desire this to be my attitude, and it is so not my attitude. I want to have a posture against those who sin against me personally. I want to have a posture against those who sin against this body And I want to have a posture of those who sin against the universal church. I want to have a posture of forbearance, of meekness, gentleness, of compassion. And I think as Christians we don't a lot of times. 
Do you ever wonder when somebody sins against you? Let's say it's something small. Let's just say it's somebody that's a waiter at a restaurant. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, I've got a pet peeve that when I spend money on a service, by golly, I want service. And I want it now. I want it with a smile. And it better be good. And we've all had the cranky server, haven't we? We've all had the cranky server. Have you ever thought what might be going on in that cranky server's life? You wonder that? I wonder. Maybe that server had broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe they're dealing with scars of childhood. What's going on? Do you lash out because you deserve better? I've got a friend. I just heard about this the other day. Nancy told me about it. That when his family goes out to dinner or lunch or breakfast or whatever, and whoever's waiting on them, they say, he says this to the waiter or waitress. My family and I are getting ready to pray for our meal. Is there anything we can pray for you? What a great discipline. It kind of disarms hostility, doesn't it? I love that. I don't know if I can do it, but I love it. How about this? And I know that at times I'm a one-string guitar. Oh, let me back up on that. I want to, the Lord gave me a story, a story last week that really has been out of character for me for a number of months. And I think it's been out of character for me because I don't believe that um, I've been necessarily walking in the Spirit. I've been walking in the flesh a lot. And we, it's, it's lawn time. And I pulled the lawnmower out and the trimmer out. Lawnmower doesn't start. Trimmer has line that was sucked back up into it. Mitchell's not home, and I don't know how to fix it. So I took the trimmer to a lawnmower repair place or an engine repair place. And I got there, and a lady, uh, an older lady, opens a door, a garage door, and says, you got a problem with your trimmer? I said, yeah. She says, tell me about it. I said, "Uh, does this and that and that type of thing. And I said, do you fix these? And she says, yeah, why? (laughs) Chauvinist. Judgmental. And I said, well, I I said, I I was just wondering if you fixed it. And she said, yeah, I do. She says, do you have a problem with that? And I said, no, I don't don't have a problem with that. I I just thought it was unique that a lady was fixing engines. And I said, why do you ask? Why do you ask me if I have a problem with it? And she says, because men come in here all the time. Macho men is what she said. Macho men come in here all the time and think that a lady can't do it, the job. And I go, boy, I don't think that at all. <laughs> in fact, I love your shoes. <laughs> and and the, the whole, typically what happens to me in that scenario is I do this, I do this, I do this. I'm taking my thing, I'm going to go find somebody else that isn't so combative. But the Holy Spirit, that's all I can attribute to, just gave me gentleness and meekness like He doesn't normally do, or like I don't normally access. It's always there for me to take. I said, ma'am, have you been wounded by a man? Have you been wounded? And she says, no. And then she went on to explain a little bit of her life. And I asked her, she, she went on to explain that she does her job with integrity. And she charges a fair price, by golly. And she does a better job than anybody she knows at a fair price. Because she wants to make sure that when she sees somebody in the grocery store, that she doesn't have to hide from them. That she's giving them back their equipment that's, well, that's working well. And I said, where did you develop that integrity? That is really cool. And she said, my dad. 
She said, my dad. And she explained a little bit about her dad. This is, I mean, there's like lawnmowers all over the place. And I'm talking to this lady. And there's no other customers. And then she says, why did you ask me about, about my integrity? And I said, because, because I'm governed by, by my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by the words that, that are in his Bible. And she goes, you know, she says, I'm governed by faith too. She says, I just don't normally tell people that. And then she said that I believe, you know, I believe that God, the Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I said, who's Jesus to you? And she says, Jesus is a good teacher. I said, do you believe that he's God? And she says, yeah, I believe he's God. And, but she says, I believe that, that he's not the only way to God. And I said, you know, the Bible teaches, Jesus says in the Bible that he is the only way to the Father. That you can't get to God the Father except through me. And I used the old, whoever's line that was, C.S. Lewis, whoever it was, that, ma'am, you've got to consider that Jesus is either God and he's the only way to Father, or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And at that time, another customer walked up. And the only reason I tell you that story, because it is very unusual for me, in all glory go to God, and I'm praying when I go pick this thing up, I'll have another opportunity. But that's an example of not reviling in return when we're reviled. Because this world is full of hurting people that ultimately need to hear the news of Jesus Christ. And I don't care if it's a doctor that's done 500 abortions. I don't care. That man's going to hell without surrendering his life to Christ. There's a story that that I pulled off the internet. Actually, was emailed to me. And I want to read it to you. And the title of it is, is, Would You Minister to the Top Nazi War Criminals? When Army Chaplain Henry Garrick was offered a job that nobody wanted, he too could have turned it down. But instead, he chose to shine Christ's light in a very dark place. Gerke was offered this difficult job for several reasons. He spoke German, he was Protestant, and he had experience in prison ministry. So what was the job that these things qualified him for? Gerke was asked to serve as a chaplain and spiritual advisor to the top Nazi war criminals awaiting trial at Nuremberg. Of the 21 men, 15 identified themselves as Protestant. Of those 15, some still didn't want to have anything to do with Gerke. But others were ready to receive the message of hope found in the gospel. Now remember, this was right after the war. This wasn't like yesterday. And these men were responsible for thousands of innocent lives, men, women, and children, being murdered. One such man was William Cattell. He had been the chief of the supreme command of the armed forces. When Gerke first met him, he was sitting in his cell reading a Bible. Gerke doubted his sincerity at first, but as the two men prayed together, Gerke realized that Cattell was truly seeking Christ. Cattell began attending chapel services. So did other men, including Jochum von Rippentrop, Hitler's foreign minister. At first, Ribbentrop didn't appear interested in the gospel. He insisted, this business of a religion isn't as serious as you consider it. But he kept coming to the services. Eventually, Cattell and four other men trusted in Christ as their savior. Gerke was cautious about offering communion to the men. After all, he said, I have had many years of experience as a prison chaplain, and I don't believe I am easily deluded by phony reformations at the 11th hour. 
Still, he became convinced that these men were sincere. And so he invited them to take the Lord's Supper. As he took it, Cattell prayed, May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. As the trials went on, a rumor circulated that Gerke would be returning home before the final verdicts had been given. In response, the men wrote a letter to Gerke's wife, and every prisoner signed it. The letter asked Mrs. Gerke to allow her husband to stay until the trials had ended. Part of the letter told her, Our dear chaplain Gerke is necessary for us, not only as a pastor, but also as a thoroughly good man, as a thoroughly good man that he is. In this stage of the trial, it is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us. Mrs. Gerke's reply was brief. They need you. So Gerke stayed. Many of the prisoners, including Cattell and Ribbentrop, received death sentences, as you can imagine, and they deserved it. Before Ribbentrop's execution, he told Gerke that he had indeed trusted Christ as his Savior. When asked for his last words, Ribbentrop said, This is a guy that was responsible for tens of thousands of people's lives being murdered. He said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. He then looked at Gerke and said, I'll see you again. Many of the men did die without coming to know Christ, but God used Gerke powerfully in the lives of others. After the trials ended, Gerke returned home and continued his work as a prison chaplain. He died in 1961. Get this. This amazes me. This is the church in America. Following his death, his son found a thick pack of letters condemning Gerke for his work at the trials. Some even said that Gerke should have been hanged with the criminals. The letters provide a strong contrast to the message of grace and mercy and gentleness and meekness that Gerke took to men that the world thought was beyond hope. Isn't that a convicting story? There's consequences to sin. There's consequences to murder. God has put the law in place for these consequences. But we're not to hate. We're not to hate the person that does abortion. We're not to hate the Taliban. We're not to hate Iraq. We're not to hate Saddam Hussein. We're to pray for them. Yeah, we've got to defend this country. And yeah, we may end up killing them. Because we're defending our country. But we're to pray for them. They need the gospel. My wife Nancy has been going to this book club on Monday nights. It's an Oprah book club. And they're, uh, I might have told you about it last week. I don't remember. But it's, uh, she actually bailed out of it because she, she missed too many of them. But it really is the church of Oprah. And it's on Monday nights. There's 700,000 people that are sitting on this telecast going to 130 countries. And the book that they're reviewing right now... It's all about spirituality. And there's probably some truth in this book, but it's full of lies. And Oprah is a lady that calls herself a Christian on the air. Yet, in the next breath, she says that the Muslims are going to heaven, that there's other ways to God the Father. Now, that's what should make us angry. Somebody that is dragging the truth of Christ through the dirt. Because she says she's a Christian. Yet she's preaching a false gospel. Okay? Muslims, they're lost. 
pray for them. The only thing that's going to remove the scales from their eyes and open their eyes to the truth is the truth, is the Holy Spirit. None of that was in my notes. One other example in, in John 8, Jesus finds a woman that was brought to him that was caught in the act of adultery. They literally removed her. The Pharisees removed her from the act of adultery and threw her in the street and asked Jesus what he was going to do about it. What do you think about this, Jesus? And Jesus says, Whichever of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. The Pharisees were convicted and they fled. And Jesus told this lady to not sin anymore. That he doesn't condemn her. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness, amazing forgiveness. God is ready to forgive and he can forgive anybody. But as Christians, we need to operate with the compassion of Christ. Let's go back to chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians verse 1. The Pharisees, the false teachers, they saw Paul's compassion as weakness. He says this, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm absent. He's being sarcastic. Because basically what they said is that Paul is like the two-pound frizzy-haired dog at the gate that's bark, 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 and you come up the gate and he runs 90 miles an hour the other way. They're calling him a wimp. They're saying that he doesn't have any backbone. They said about him that he's bold towards us when he's absent. If you look ahead at verse 10, in chapter 10, we'll probably get this next week, it says that his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. These people are slandering Paul and telling the congregation that he is a wimp in person and he's got these strong words when he writes. They were misunderstanding his compassion when he was there. They were misunderstanding his boldness when he was away. The next four chapters, all four of these chapters, Paul is going to deal with this. You're going to see a mixture of compassion and weakness and strength. That really should characterize our walk. There's times when we need to have courage and do what Popeye did and say what Popeye said. I can only stand so much and I can't stand no more. But it's only after that compassion and after that long-suffering. You know, I'm not sure we know what this looks like as men. I'm not sure I know what it looks like because I hate it when my boys are picked on. I mean, how many of you guys have said this? You know, don't let them do that to you. Don't let him do it to you. When he's not looking, deck him. And I know there's a fine line, but when I, when I look at Paul and Christ, they stood up for other things and other people, not for themselves. We see Paul standing up for himself a little bit in chapter 10, but it's really, he's really not standing up for Paul. He's standing up for the office so that he can boldly declare Christ. He's not defending himself. So it would be a great thing for us guys to discuss. But I would submit to you to don't operate in your own paradigm. Take a look at the life of Paul and the life of Christ. And how often did they stand up for themselves? I would submit to you not very often. A couple weeks ago, I was, I was slandered. I was slandered. And you know, it's, uh, gossip is when you talk about somebody behind their back when you're not part of the, the problem or part of the solution. Slander is when you speak lies to somebody else about somebody else. And I was slandered. And praise God, it was, it was brought to the surface. And intuitively, I knew that it could be very harmful for the church. 
if these seeds of slander got out into the wind. In my flesh, I wanted to go after this thing because I was wronged. I wanted to revile. And that's not Christ. And I even, I even did. A couple of the other brothers who were involved, I was, I mean, they basically had to restrain me. And what the Lord showed me through all that, and I praise God that He's letting me teach through this, is that it's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about His Word. It's about preserving the church and preserving the truth. Let's take a quick look at the second trait of, of a good soldier of Paul, and it's courage. And he says this in verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. You know, in this little section, I mean, it's, it's a tongue twister, and it made my mind spin. But basically, he's saying, I beg you that when I'm present, I don't have to bring the rod. That's what he's saying. I beg you that when I'm present, I, you don't have to see my courage. I think of Yoda. Does anybody know Star Wars? You think of Yoda, this, this, this little guy that's meek, you know, and just kind of gives advice and counsel. But I don't know what Star Wars was, but they gave, he, he pulled out his lightsaber, and it, I mean, he started just whacking people. But Paul is a little bit like Yoda. He's gentle. He's meek. He's compassion. I don't think Yoda loved the Lord, though. He may have. But don't cross him. And particularly, don't defame the name of Christ. Don't pollute the pure word of God. And don't attack his church. Because there will be hell to pay. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, my hope is that I don't have to be bold when I get there. But if I do, I propose to be so. Let's take a look at a couple of these words quickly. The word bold. He says that when I'm present, he doesn't want to be bold with them. Because bold means to act without fear regardless of consequences. He says, I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what you say to me. You better have repented or you better have been gone when I get there. He's going to be bold. It means to abandon yourself without regard for personal safety, to disregard any personal safety or preservation. He says, don't force me to display the confrontational boldness I can demonstrate if I'm required to do so. He says, I can be bold with confidence. Confidence literally means conviction. He says, I have convictions. I've been called as a protector of the Word of God. I've been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. I've been called to protect the church. And if need be, I propose to be courageous, meaning that I plan on being courageous when I get there. If you haven't repented or you haven't jetted. This is a beautiful picture of a tender warrior, a man of immense compassion. But when a fight has to be fought, he's in the front line. Like any good commander, it's in the front line. Second Corinthians 13, he warns them that he's going to come and use severity if he has to. He'll use the authority the Lord has given him. He'd rather use it for building up. That's Paul's heart. He wants to, he, his passion is to build up. But he's also a protector. And if he has to, he'll come and he'll smash and tear it down. And we're going to finish with this. 
The Judaizers have accused him of being rotten inside. And he says, I'm coming after these folks when I get there. I don't want to come with guns a-blazing. I don't want to come armed with war. But if the rebels aren't gone or haven't repented, it's going to happen. This is an example of the Christian soldier operating with the compassion of Christ and with the courage that Paul was called to. And I'm sorry that I don't have any application slides or notes, but I trust the Lord will use it in your lives. He's called us to be gentle and meek. Remember meek. There's power under control. Gentleness means that we have the right to retaliate, but we restrain it. Encourage. Like we talked about last week, men, and some of you ladies that were here, Nathan had the courage at the risk of his life to confront the most powerful man on the planet in his sin, to confront his friend David. We, have, we need to have the courage to confront, but only after we've exercised compassion, patience, gentleness, and meekness. Let's pray. Worship team, would you work your way up? Father, we just uh, praise you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Christ that endured a brutal, brutal beating and death. He could have torched all those people. He could have split the ground and devoured them. But he knew what he was called to. And he didn't revile. He didn't strike back when he was reviled. God, would you show us what that practically looks like as we leave here today? Lord, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the meekness and gentleness of Christ as we interact with people we love, with people that we perceive to be enemies, with people that are distractions to us during the week. And Lord, we just thank you for the joy that we can find in the battle, knowing that you called us to this battle that you've given us everything we need to fight this battle. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I take such great comfort in that. And we love you and praise you. Amen.